Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Maria Moridi, who is an associate professor at The Ohio State University in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Organismal Biology. She joined us to talk about her article, The Elephant in the room, race and STEM diversity. We also chatted about some of the ways that culture within the academy could be reformed to improve the recruitment and retention of members of underrepresented groups. But let's go straight to that interview. All right, Maria, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Okay, I was hoping we could get started with sort of a broad overview of the situation in STEM. And one thing I was unaware of before reading your article was that the difference between the number of faculty of color represented in STEM versus the wider academy is something like 20% versus 9%. Yes. And what I was curious about is this sort of a newly realized, recognized phenomenon, or is this something that's been studied and established in the literature over a long period of time? It, it, it's, it's not always clear the extent to which it's been looked at within the academy. I mean, NSF does a report um, periodically that gives the state of diversity um, in, in STEM and they do include racial diversity within that. However, a lot of the um, a lot of the reports on increasing diversity, I think, have just looked at diversity very broadly. And so, anyone that does not necessarily or that does not at all match a white male phenotype, if you will, sure. is seen to in be enhancing diversity. And so the numbers show this um, most notably in the number of women that are present within STEM disciplines. Yeah, and I think we could actually go ahead and talk about that right now. You describe that in the article as sort of, you know, um, a single axis view of, of diversity. Is it, do I have that right? Yes. And so that's a case in which, you know, you, you look at diversity as a very broad issue, um, but you fail to capture, you know, the multiplicity of ways in which someone might be considered so. Yeah, I mean, you know, once upon a time when the when the field, broadly speaking, was totally and completely um, white men, or even where there were women that were present, their contributions um, were many times overlooked. You know, it's not it's not a mistake by itself to only look at gender diversity. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the challenge is the idea that by bringing in women, the majority of whom are typically white women, but the problem with that is the idea that somehow the issues or the, or the, the barriers that these people have faced will also include a broader group of people. And I think that that is where um, a number of diversity initiatives live. Sometimes when I'm in a, a grouchy mood, you know, I, I, I sometimes think of things like trickle-down social justice types of issues. Um, and what it does, though, is, is that it, it masks other types of barriers that are in the world, and I think that are a little bit more challenging to confront. And very broadly speaking, you know, what sorts of challenges are we looking at there? I think that um, racism is a big one. 
Um, I think that um, inequities that are associated with socioeconomic status is another big one. I think that um, in some ways, you know, anybody who's going to be successful in STEM has worked hard at some level, right? And um, I think that sometimes it can feel like a confrontation when a challenge is posed that suggests that person A has had an easier time or has been enabled in some way compared to person B. And in particular, when we know or when there's been a number of studies that show that, you know, people along racial lines might not be as much equipped to pursue STEM disciplines because if they're in a poor community, then the quality of education isn't as well. And there are issues like that that um, people point to, and, and, and it doesn't mean that these issues are inaccurate, but they don't really capture all of the challenges that are associated with pursuing STEM, um, persisting through the curriculum, and then even once a degree is um, attained, to be able to persist within the culture um, of the various institutions that are associated with STEM. And, and as you were saying, you have people on the other side who have not faced those challenges, but who have nevertheless achieved a very high level of academic success. And they're probably not particularly warm to the notion that they've had it easy in any way. So it seems that you know perhaps there's some potential for blowback there. I think that there is, um, and I think that in education, you know, they they call um, they they acknowledge something called a deficit model, where people's inability to be successful in STEM largely, but in other disciplines too, has to do with gaps in their training, and there there's been some more of a, a movement to try to look at. Um, this problem a bit more broadly and recognize that there are cultural cues that exist within the way that we're trained um, that might be signaling to people that they don't belong in a particular discipline. And then the other side of that challenge too is because people communicate in ways that have a, a cultural signal that sometimes information that is presented in a non-traditional way isn't really recognized as knowledge, right? That makes sense. So on top of you know other challenges, you have the fact that uh, you know people's experiences and um, capabilities aren't being recognized because they don't come through necessarily the traditional channels. Do you think STEM culture? Um, you know, plays a, a negative role in this or, or, or is challenged in this insofar as, you know, people tend to view themselves in STEM fields as being objective. Um, and they may be more resistant to the, the notion that these sort of, you know, uh, cultural cues are embedded in their, their daily practice. I think that that is a big challenge. Um, I think that, that that is a really big, big challenge. I think that 
I mean, there have been some more recent studies that are trying to address this question, and I think that we can um, see some cultural elements, for example, in studies that look at the language of science, which now is predominantly English. I think that we can see this in other cultural um, examinations of, for example, fieldwork that is conducted, um, you know, in a place that is not where the scientist is from. So, you know, when I was in graduate school, I did some research in the Brazilian Amazon, and the we we relied very heavily on the local knowledge of the people who were from Manaus. Um, in this case, and the those those contributions don't get recognized, right? And whatever it is that um, a local person might be providing in terms of their knowledge of how it is that the forest works still passes through a filter, right, before it gets communicated to the scientific community. And so there are other people who also are looking at that and also what we value, right? Because for example, if we do research that is going to have a, a strong positive effect on an actual local condition in a, a, a habitat such as the tropics, that contribution doesn't have as much academic merit as one that might be dealing with, you know, what might be downright arcane to a large number of people, but might be making a contrib contribution to scientific theory, right? And so we don't we don't value the contributions of research in the same way, depending upon who it's impacting. And I'm wondering, do you also have a problem in which, you know, those who have participated in some way in the research, perhaps not as, you know, a research scientist, but as someone who's, you know, field assistant or has helped with the collection of data, is not being credited as perhaps they should be, you know, when it comes time to compile the large list of participants and authors and send it off to a journal? Yeah, that, that is true. And, um, you know, sometimes with the large groups, maybe partly because of that, but, you know, it also is reflected in who is it who gets invited to participate in these types of collaboration. So, you know, on the one hand, it's the acknowledging of the, um, of the field assistants and other people, um, technicians, for example, um, and then the other thing is that, you know, depending upon the type of work that someone does, even if they might know a lot about a given system, but haven't produced a certain quality of paper, they're not necessarily invited to participate in these large efforts. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that has become a certainly a common refrain is the fact that, you know, the lone principal investigator model of science is much less relevant now. And it's been largely replaced by these enormous collaborations. And when you get down to, you know, how do you become involved in those types of collaborations, that question is something that's much less frequently addressed. And I would assume it's through informal networks. Does that also come into play here? 
think that it does. I think that, um, you know, there are certain institutions that have um, training that is of a given level, right? So, you know, if you get a degree from Harvard, it means something different than if you get a degree from University of Pittsburgh. I mean, I'm just pulling these, um, you know, institutions out kind of randomly. And, and so if you, if you come from a more prestigious program, then your network is going to be broader. I guess that's one of the advantages of these programs. Um, they are not always as accessible to everyone. I guess that's part of being elite. But I think that sometimes also there are hidden cultural barriers that kind of go along with um, elite institutions because if you have someone who is from a non-traditional background, however you want to identify it, either their ethnicity but or the combination, I should say. It. Ethnicity I don't think is enough, but if you're from, you know, a low socioeconomic status, right? Or, um, or if you are a minority, or women depend a woman depending upon what field you're going into, um, it is harder within the constructs of a lot of these institutions and programs to really be able to um, negotiate the program as effectively um, as someone who either, you know, is from a higher socioeconomic status or has had um, greater experience with um, educational systems, these types of things that come into play that do influence how well an individual performs. And so um, the way in which this has been discussed in educational literature is a sense of social belonging, right? And there are studies that do demonstrate that that social component does influence an individual's performance. Um, and so what it is, I guess, that I'm trying to describe is that there are, there, there's, there's different tiers, I guess, of, of, of access because, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have seen um, or if you have, um, heard accounts of, um, you know, people who are really bright who get into a program, but then they don't persist, right? And so it, it's, it's not just getting in the door, it's, it's that ability to be able to persist within a particular academic situation. And so combined, you know, these factors do affect um, the sense of inclusion, but also the access to broader networks within the discipline that are really, really important to being successful. So that, you know, that would be a case in which the pipeline, as it were, can be pushed, nudged in the direction of greater inclusion. But if you don't also alter, you know, the culture and the programs themselves, and indeed, I suppose, to some degree, the, the people within them, um, to en encourage them to, you know, be aware of implicit bias or, you know, even just the effects of their own 
networks and relationships and, and, and those sorts of things. If you don't work, you know, kind of both sides, the pipeline and the entity itself, you wind up with a situation in which people leave the field. Yeah, or else um, end up more isolated within the field, which might not help them over the long term in terms of having a broader network. I mean, it, it just occurred to me in, in, in an example that I've heard um, in, in, in our, among our graduate students. Um, in particular, this was in a, a seminar that I offered this past fall on diversity in ecology and evolution. And I was surprised um, that a number of the students were unhappy that a lot of the socializing occurs in bars, right? I wasn't prepared for that, but there are a lot of reasons why people, students, our students have been speaking up about this because some people don't drink. Some people can't afford, right, to spend, I don't know how much a beer costs in a pub or whatever it is that people want to have. And they don't like the pressure of explaining away why they might be drinking a 7-Up or something else, right? Someone is a recovering alcoholic or, you know, has to be managing that type of stuff, then it puts them in an uncomfortable situation. And so I make this... um, point just to say that sometimes even topics that feel relatively benign, right, um, just because that's what people commonly do, um, without examining that, um, you know, you might be fostering something that favors one group of people over another because in these casual types of environments is where a lot of information gets shared. That leads me to wonder, you know, what are the ways or, or, or do we know uh, what ways institutions should be looking to foster a more inclusive environment um, and, and one that is more successful at doing the things that I think are universally, you know, thought of or one would hope universally thought of as being good, of you know, fostering greater diversity. What should institutions be doing? Well, I think that <laughs> it's, it's, it is a challenge to think of ways in which the institutions can change. I think that because there are so few people of color within STEM disciplines, I think that the solutions would have to be um, multi-institutional ways of providing some type of a a safe environment for faculty of color to really be able to um, state what the challenges are you know to be able to do that in a way where you're not necessarily going to get pinned to your institution or, or your department or anything that um, might make people become a bit more reticent because, you know, you, I think that there are issues that need to be identified, but, you know, you don't want to alienate your, your colleagues or to put people or programs on the defensive 
And so I, I think that having a, a multi-institutional approach would be one way. And I think that also just really trying to acknowledge um, that the playing field is not as level as 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 we try to um, proclaim. Many institutions value diversity, right? And at the same time, many institutions really lack the diversity that they value. And, you know, therein is the puzzle because you can't just always say that, well, people don't want to come, right? Our doors are open, people aren't coming, right? The, the actual issues have to be stated. And I, and, and I think that that means that there has to be some broad trust of um, colleagues of color to be able to outline what the challenges are and that be heard. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other things I wanted to capture from your article, uh, because I thought it was a very important point, is that oftentimes these diversity enhancement measures, in terms of the labor required to do them, uh, fall disproportionately on the shoulders of faculty of color. And, you know, although institutions uh, will, you know, clearly state that they believe that these are highly important activities, they're not necessarily considered in the same light as, you know, things like grant funding uh, or publications when it comes to promotion and, you know, other measures of professional attainment. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, the currency for promotion is, you know, grants, um, the number of articles that you publish. I mean, those are the two big ones, right? All these things are in some ways seem to be objective, right? Um, because everybody's throwing their hat into NSF or NIH or, you know, whatever your funding base is, depending upon your research emphasis. But all of these other things that we've been talking about in terms of your network, in terms of um, your isolation, influence the success, the institution where you got your degree, right? They influence your success, right? The work to include um, a broader base that everybody values in terms of scientific productivity, that work is, is not really recognized. I mean, it, it's recognized, you know, there's awards. I was a recipient of uh, um, a diversity enhancement award um, through the Ecological Society last year and um, also um, from my institution, right? But that, that's not going to get me a fat raise this year. Well, this year is an exceptional thing. I don't think anybody's getting a raise. Um, but it, it's not going to be something that is going to get me promoted. Right. So you have this, you have the situation in which, you know, uh, Perhaps access to the uh, you know the traditional forms of reward are um, you know not enhanced to say the least, and then additional labor is being requested or required 
that is then not rewarded itself. Right. And, you know, it's, and then I guess the other thing, and I haven't spoken about this with other people, but, you know, you also don't want to end up being put in a box like, okay, you know, I, I do work towards um, culturing diversity or enhancing diversity, but, you know, I, I still do ecological research, right? And, you know, I, it's a challenge to try to keep that balanced and also to be recognized, you know, still as a scholar, you know, in STEM. I think that some people, um, you know, once they head down the path of, you know, trying to promote diversity and inclusion, then that becomes what you do. Um, and it's, I don't know, I think I imagine that that must be a big challenge for some people. Yeah, I can imagine. And it seems that there would be, you know, a natural fear of, of being typecast in some ways and potentially not receiving the credit for the multiplicity of one's contributions in the academy, but rather only being seen in this one role. Right. And also perhaps some, you know, sometimes with the institutions, then it's like, oh, you did a good job with that. And then, you know, the service load gets um, higher and higher, right? And then that compromises the scientific productivity. That makes sense. And, you know, are there any things in particular that we should be saying to members of the academy that might help them avoid some of these pitfalls and some of these problems that you highlight? You know, I think I think that anything and everything that we can try to do to, you know, get people to acknowledge um you know, how race plays a role in so much of what we do, um, whether we are doing it in our communities, but definitely within our academic institutions, and not just see it as a societal problem that is outside of the institution. We're all a part of the society in which we live and grew up in and it's not necessarily an outside um, factor it, it starts with each of us and I, I really do think that it is important that faculty come to accept this very broadly because without faculty buy-in right we're the ones who are um, in the day-to-day -day students right Whatever it is that is occurring, we perpetuate it, right? We, we model it, we foster it. And so, you know, we want to foster the changes that we value. And so it has to start, you know, within that recognition or with that recognition, I should say, that we live in a racialized world. And so to to divorce our academic practice from that is not going to get us towards the diversity um, you know, goals that institutions are setting and that many departments value. And I think that's an excellent note on which to leave it. Uh, Maria, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, you're welcome. And thank you for, for, for asking.
And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.